0: Touchline Takes. In certain terms, a better combination than Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, this. Whoa, gosh. touch gosh.
1: Touchline Takes. Podcast.
0: Excuse me.
1: Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Touchline Takes. It is a very special episode today that we have for you. Um, Cameron and I are joined here by the godfather of Midwest American soccer himself, Peter Wilt. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We really appreciate it.
0: Oh, my gosh. Uh, What an introduction. Uh, Thank you very much. No, it's great to be on with you. Uh, Thanks for having me.
1: No, of course. And so, when we have guests on this show, um, the first thing we like to do is kind of ask them the hardest question that we're going to ask them mm. the entire time, um, and I that like to throw is here. Curveball. This is this is <laughs> the big curveball, Peter. What made you fall in love with the sport and want to be so involved, like you are? Uh, you
0: know, I think it was my first uh, introduction to it, which was way back forty years ago, forty years and about three months. Uh, June of 1981, I went to a Chicago Sting game against the New York Cosmos at Wrigley Field. It was sold out. It was the year the Sting won the championship, and I was amazed by the atmosphere. Um, Everyone seemed to be from somewhere else. I mean, I I thought I was the foreigner (laughs) there because everyone was speaking a different language and really passionate and into it. And Granted, it was an unbelievable game. Uh, it ended up being 6-5 to in favor of the Sting. So the the best soccer game I ever went to might have been the first one.
1: (laughs) Wow. And and did that sort of give you like some direction? Like, yeah, you know, I really want to be involved with this. And even like, you know, where did the idea come from that you wanted, at an organization level, you wanted to be involved?
0: Well, that was back when I was working with Milwaukee Admirals hockey team, actually, in the mid eighties and there there was an indoor soccer team in uh, Milwaukee that needed some help, the Milwaukee wave. Mm. And, um, I, 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 um, offered to help them out on the business side and they were in need of, of some help. (laughs) And, um, I had a really good experience there. We had Mm -hmm. some, um, improvements in attendance and, and sponsorship and, uh, um, I started to make a bit of a name for myself, I guess, and was then hired to uh, run the Chicago Power indoor soccer team. And uh, that was 19 oh gosh, 1990 that I went to the Power and got my first general manager position.
2: So Peter, can I actually ask you a quick question? I mean, uh, I think everyone knows you now as the guy who uh, just knows how to get things off the ground. Um, you know, you've, you've been there since the beginning of, of MLS practically, uh, you know, now you're, you're leading the charge in Chicago for NISA. Uh, but there's a question that I have actually struggled to find an answer to. Did you play soccer growing up? (laughs) That's a
0: great question. And no, I did not, you know, it (laughs) wasn't offered. I am so old that I predate uh, mainstream soccer participation in this country. So it wasn't available. It's not that I didn't like it or I didn't want to play. It just wasn't available. I, you know, I think we played like uh, one week or two weeks in gym class uh, every year <laughs> something like that. But that was the extent of it. I grew up outside Chicago, about 50 miles outside of Chicago. I'm sure if I mm-hmm. grew up in the city, there would have been plenty of opportunities to mm-hmm. play. Uh, but um, out in the ex-burbs, uh, there were no opportunities.
2: Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of what I've heard. Like, it, it seems to me like the 90s was sort of the explosion of, of youth soccer leading into like the early 2000s. Did you have any other exposure, though? Uh, did you have like family members who were into particular teams, maybe overseas or domestic as well?
0: No, not at all. I mean, I watched a little bit that you probably have heard of it, Soccer Made in Germany on, on PBS. Uh, Back in in, in the 80s. Once a week, they would have a um, condensed version of the Bundesliga uh, for 60 minutes on uh, uh, Channel 11 in Chicago. And I'm sure I was exposed to that, but it's not like I had a huge passion for it. I came Mm -hmm. into the sport really through the business side and grew to love Mm -hmm. it and um, found I I had a a bit of an acumen to connect with people and um, turn them on to the game. And then I learned the sport itself just by being around it. I think my time in Minnesota really helped with that when I helped launch the Minnesota Thunder as their president, general manager, and part owner. And learning the game from Buzz Lagos mm. and and uh, the coaches there and the players, that really taught me a lot about the game. And uh, after that is when the fire hired me. Well, they weren't even the fire. Mm-hmm. It was just Chicago MLS.
2: Right, and, right. And
0: um, uh employee 0001 and we had think about this the other day I was hired July 1st of 97 our first game was the following March we had like I don't know nine months to get that team off the ground you know, nowadays you got a team expansion teams like St. Louis that um gosh
1: oh it's like it seems like ten years, but it's yeah,
2: like, I've yeah. I've almost forgotten that they're they're still uh, <laughs> joining MLS.
1: Even Charlotte yeah. too. Like it feels like it just keeps getting pushed back. Like I mean, there's I mean. Well, now I if think you go through the have...
2: airport, they'll let you know that there's a new MLS team coming to Charlotte. If you go through the airport.
1: <laughs> yeah, this is a, a happy
0: medium. You know, nine months mm-hmm. probably wasn't ideal. Um, I've done them. You know, I've started nine teams, and the time frame for the launch has ranged from nine months to. 18 months, I think Indy 11 was the longest, 18 months, and I I don't know, somewhere between 15 and 18 months is probably ideal in
1: my book. I think if you get more than 18 months, you almost uh, risk losing momentum along the way. I think so. No, I definitely agree. It's almost like the kind of excitement of that announcement, you know, you wait too long and then you kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, a team's coming to St. Louis. Oh, yeah, a team's coming to Indianapolis, Um, but Peter... Nine teams. That's a lot. And I know one of the most recent ones is, you know, Chicago house and NISA, but is, is there one you can pick one project that you've taken on that you're the most proud of?
0: (laughs) Well, ironically, you know, I'm not supposed to answer this question because it's like picking your favorite child, right? Uh, but it's, it's one that failed. It was the Chicago riot is an indoor Mm -hmm. team in the major indoor soccer league. And it ended poorly, you know. The owners—it was a league-owned team. The league asked me to go in there and start a team with 35 days' notice. Um, wow. And it was—it was difficult, but we had so much fun, and we had to be creative because we had no resources. You know, at the mm-hmm. end, it was sad because um, players and myself didn't get paid. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and it was unfortunate. But, you know, from a business standpoint, we actually did okay. We, we lost less money than any other team in that league. The Legal League only had four teams. And that's when they came to us and said, we need a fifth team to really call it a league. So I had been, uh, working for the Milwaukee Wave the second time and I went down there. Uh, brought in my friend Tom Dunmore, uh, and we added a couple other, uh, friends, uh, Greg Veskowski, who I worked with at the Chicago Fire back in the day. Um, uh, Mario, who uh, was one of the Section 8 board members, helped us. So it's just like four or five guys that pitched in to help do it. And it was a different experience than all the other ones. It was you know less corporate, mm. and it was mm. you know, really bootstrapping it. And we had fun with it. So that's the one I'm, I'm kind of most proud of. <laughs> and uh, maybe an answer that you wouldn't have uh, thought of, but no, that, no. There, we, there we have it.
2: What what year was that again, Peter? When you would have done that? Oh
0: gosh, that was a little over a decade ago—the so two thousand ten, two
2: thousand eleven. Okay, okay. And do you still like? Would, do you still follow what's going on in indoor soccer as much, or
0: not as much as I'd like? And part of that is that my local team, Wave, has, um, which is you know the oldest professional. Ongoing soccer team in the United States has not been mm-hmm. ongoing the last two seasons. Right. Took a, took a break, so it caused me to lose some touch with the indoor scene, unfortunately.
2: You know, I think one of the craziest things about indoor soccer is a lot of the stories that kind of got lost. Um, and I, I'm not sure if that's maybe due to the time period where I- information was not as available as it is now like i think only just a couple of years ago i read the story of um steve zungle for for instance and it's amazing i mean there's so many factors involved in that story uh geopolitics not being able to go you know back and play and in europe and uh his his off the pitch lifestyle i mean it, it just seems like an era of soccer that uh sorely needs to be documented better and i i'm sure you have plenty of stories
0: yeah, uh, 100%. Uh, yeah, the lord of all indoors, Steve Jungle. Yeah, yeah, Um The 1985 to 1995 were the dark ages of American soccer, because there was no First Division Men's Professional Outdoor Soccer mm-hmm. League. And that doesn't mean there weren't great players in the United States. There were many. Some of them had come to the U.S. from abroad uh, to play mm-hmm. in the NAFL. Uh, some were then brought in by the MISL. And some were Americans coming up. And these were great, great players, uh, but they played indoors in a sport that's certainly not that familiar to people nowadays and was being pushed on Americans that weren't really expecting soccer. They didn't know what they were expecting, I guess, but you're right. The, the, the personalities, the stories, much more colorful than I think uh, today. I think we've got a little bit of a cookie-cutter corporate approach to most of American outdoor soccer right now and there I, um there are stories that have been untold unfortunately
1: now you mentioned sort of those dark ages and um it's it's kind of weird to think about sitting here because whenever you turn a tv on now all you see is soccer from different streaming services i mean you could Turn on the TV on a weekend and watch, you know, the leagues down in South America and Argentina and Brazil if you have the right streaming services. How have you seen the game sort of grow with that excitement of people who just really enjoy watching and playing the sport?
0: That's a fantastic point. And then I remember in the seventies, people saying it's a sport of the seventies, a sport of the eighties, sport of the nineties. And everyone expected a soccer revolution where it would be some event that would instantaneously convert the masses, and the supporters of the sport. In reality, it's been a soccer evolution, and it's taken time. And there's various events or uh, elements that have caused that evolution. You hit on one of them. Uh, the uh, amount of broadcast soccer now, you know, the 24-hour soccer channels, online availability, really makes accessibility to the sport and mainstreams it. Much, much more than ever before. And another thing that people forget about, yeah, they always hone in on participation. And yes, the increase in soccer participation is a big part of it. But um, just because you play a sport doesn't mean you're going to want to watch it. Spectatorship and participation is two different things. Uh, another element that really <laughs> spiked interest in the sport and helped mainstream it is the popularity of the FIFA video game. Yeah, the FIFA yeah, definitely. Video game, Man, that's taken two generations of Americans, and it's mainstreamed them into the mm. sport, and it's it's not thought of as much as it should be. You know, certainly MLS and its uh, well-managed growth, um, soccer-specific stadiums, the U.S. national team, women's soccer. The uh, 1999 Women's World Cup is also underlooked as an important feature in the sport's growth. So yeah, if you timestamp 1985 to 2020, mm-hmm. yes, you, you absolutely s- instantaneously see the difference. But if you would date stamp a, a snapshot every five years, it would be a more gradual look and yeah. it, it wouldn't be as omnipresent, I guess, as you see it now.
2: Well, and I, I did a little digging, Peter, and I, um, you know, this may be a little embarrassing, but I found a blog uh, that you kept back in 2008. To around 2009, and one thing I think you were pretty early on is you—you you mentioned in that blog that you—you um, you mentioned a couple of things. You mentioned first of all that you were a journalism major in college, which I did not know. Um, Carl, uh, as well, actually studied journalism and kind of got his start doing. Uh, you did beat journalism for local high school sports, right, Carl?
1: Yep, for the Boston Globe for about four and a half years.
2: And one wow. thing you, one thing you mentioned, Peter, is that, uh, media, the landscape for media was changing. Um, and you know, I think you really noticed that back in 2009 and you really pushed, um, social media as, as a catalyst for that change, uh, along with, you know, other forms, whether it's like YouTube, things of that nature. How, how much of an impact has, uh, has that had, do you think, for, just people being exposed to it. I mean, you mentioned FIFA as as an avenue for yeah. um, the youth getting involved. But how much do you think social media has increased the availability of, of knowledge and interest yeah. in the sport?
0: Yeah, it's been tremendous. And not just social media, but, you know, brought in it to digital media. Um, yeah, it's big soccer back in the day was a, you know, it still is an online uh, soccer forum that is a, a bit like Reddit, but dedicated to soccer. Mm-hmm. And it was the public discourse uh, for soccer fans. Um, soccer fans weren't and still aren't allowed on sports radio to talk about the sport. They don't have a public forum like that. And what social media has provided is that outlet. And it's um, also a way for teams to promote themselves. And it's a platform or multiple platforms that is um, effective and efficient. You know, it's very inexpensive. Mm. Uh, First year with Chicago Fire, we blew through a million dollars in advertising just in the fourth quarter of 97 in order to establish our presence in Chicago. And we had to because there was no alternative. You couldn't reach the masses through social media or digital advertising. Uh, The times have changed, and now it's much more effective and efficient to do so Uh, in those uh, digital ways. Uh, And, and, you know, obviously social media is a young person's uh, forum or platform, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. soccer uh, is for young people. If you're under the age of 40, it's mainstream. You know, people Mm -hmm. ask me, uh, when is soccer going to become mainstream in this country? Well, the truth is, if you're under 40, it it has. Um, The last frontier for the sport is still rural America and small-town America, and it'll take some time. Uh, but when you see a market like Chattanooga, Tennessee, population 350,000, having not one but two professional soccer teams and having success at it as well, that's telling you that this isn't just some niche sport anymore. It's become mainstream. And I think social media, digital media is a big part of that.
2: Well yeah, I mean you've got you've got that's a great point actually uh and that immediately reminded me of like the Nebraska Bug Eaters for an example like they're they're in Nebraska which is I don't think anyone would have thought as being a um a hotbed of soccer in this country but they're going to show that you can make it work pretty much anywhere you are. Um so I I, I you know I wanted to follow up a little on the social media point. Um when you were talking about that was your Red Star days had you been already tinkering with how to incorporate that in marketing when you were at Chicago fire, or was that something that you were really starting to push when you got to red star and sort of how, how did you approach that with your team?
0: My first inkling of the power of digital media goes back even further to, uh, 1996 Minnesota, Minnesota thunder. When I first heard about emails and the internet, um, and, and I started communicating directly with fans, responding to them. Um, and, you know personally, that's been kind of my mantra. that's what I'm known for is my accessibility with fans. And it, it, it go, that goes back even further. But electronically, it goes back to my late thunder days. And then the early fire days, there was um, the Barn burners, which was the first uh, supporters group of the Chicago Fire um they had a list serve which was essentially a a group of uh email addresses with a common interest and i got hooked up into them as soon as i started and communicated with those fans and got them riled up and excited and informed so that when the the fire was started they became the barn burners i don't think they were the Mm -hmm. barn burners before we had to name the fire uh but that's how far back that goes. And then with my fire days, I was very involved on big soccer. And it was a great forum to communicate with people, to uh, kind of put out uh, information uh, to the dedicated masses and also to um, correct people. You know, when there's some bad information out there, mm-hmm. it's a direct way to, to the fans to talk to them, but also to hear from them. What's on their mind, what they're concerned about, and then address it or learn from it as well. So, yeah, it went back before the Red Stars years.
1: Now, when it comes to sort of that fan interaction and that community thing, um, I I could be sort of speaking from more of an outside looking in, but I feel like within the MLS that sort of has been a thing that feels like it has become disjointed. Um, And you see it a lot more with the USL and NISA, you know, where there are a lot more to community engagement. Um, How big is that community engagement where like, and how important is it to kind of get people excited about what the project that you're doing?
0: Yeah, it is important. And, It's difficult to do well. I think management of soccer teams sometimes thinks it's easy and they try doing it and they get burned or they are exposed of their attitudes, which may not be the best. And uh, they regret getting involved in it. Uh, You know, um, Merrick Paulson in uh, Portland and Rob Heineman in Kansas city at one point, they were very, very active. And, you know, Mark Cuban in the NBA has
1: been mm-hmm.
0: one of the best practitioners of it. But you don't see many executives really getting down and dirty and involved with it uh, because right. it is risky. It exposes people for who they are, and that's not always a great thing. And every time they say something or make an opinion known, there's some people that will agree with it and some people won't. And right. I it, it is important, though, whether it's the leadership or a social media manager with the team to engage with the community, engage with the fans, give them a vested interest, make them feel part of the process and lower division teams in America have generally done better with that. Um, Maybe in part because they have to, (laughs) Mm -hmm. they're more reliant on it and maybe because the fan base is smaller and it's easier to wrap around and and communicate with. Uh, But it can have a bigger impact maybe with a lower division team where, you know, if you add an extra thousand fans because of your social media at the lower division team, that's a bigger percentage impact than if you add a thousand fans uh, with an MLS team.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I'm kind of immediately thinking about Forward Madison, but, um, you know, definitely their social media, they've, they've been known for having a, an incredible social media presence, but. There's one thing that always stands out about the Forward Madison games, and it's those apartments that overlook the stadium, and how ah, yeah. how the club seemingly like you know it, they they could totally ignore the people that are watching from those apartments, but they've incorporated them into the culture, and I I absolutely love that. When I first found out about that, I think I like I had to keep looking at it and just thinking about it. I'm like, that seems like the ideal situation to be in. I mean. No offense to the club, I understand they're losing some ticket sales, but still.
0: Oh, absolutely. And we made a conscious decision to embrace them and have fun with them. And <laughs> is a point of differentiation is how the Chicago Cubs initially handled the rooftop uh, seat holders across the street from Wrigley Field. Right. And the, the Cubs were upset because they felt they were giving away their product for free, and they threatened to build— huge walls in the outfield to prevent the rooftop uh, owners from selling tickets. And ultimately, you know, the Cubs realized the bad PR there, Mm. and they reached a middle ground, which included, by the way, the Cubs actually buying most of those buildings (laughs) so they can get the profit out of it. But um, uh, with Ford Madison, and actually before that, I did a similar thing with uh, Indy 11, you mm-hmm. were able to get on top of the parking garage across the street from Carroll Stadium for Indy 11 games. And the first year, we sold out every home game, 11,000 tickets. And so there were people watching our games from the top of the parking structure um, because they couldn't get a ticket. Uh, So, you know, we didn't mind from either perspective. We weren't losing any money because we were selling every ticket. Uh, But even in the second or third year, when our attendance dropped to nine or 10,000 fans a game and we're and there's still people up there, we were fine with it. We said, it's great. You know, it's a, a different experience and um it's something to talk about and having fun with it i mean you got to have fun with your fans you cannot make them the enemy um unfortunately some teams don't get that message
2: yeah and i think with with Nassau especially there was a lot of energy at that time i mean i, I think you had had like the the a league um i'm sure there was more that i'm i'm missing here but it that seemed like the first real Competition to to MLS. I mean, obviously, we all we all know where it ended up, but there was a there was a lot of energy in those days. Um, yeah. But but towards the end, I mean, how how were you feeling when? I mean, did you sort of see the cracks in in the league, or was there something that was speaking to you saying, "I'm not sure how much longer this is going to last"?
0: Oh, certainly, yeah. The NASL had some real challenges. Uh, many of them were. Uh, self-inflicted, <laughs> and some of them were external. You know, U.S. soccer obviously um, uh, hurt the NASL with its uh, pro league standards and some of the arbitrary rules they put on True. the league. Uh, and you know, some of that is still in litigation now. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> we will, we'll, well, hopefully someday. <laughs> started. I left in the '11 to start an NASL team in Chicago, mm. and you know, we had a lease agreement. Uh, verbally, well, and through emails with the Chicago Park District to play at Soldier Field. We mm-hmm. had ownership. We're ready to go. And then mysteriously, uh, the Chicago Park District, uh, pulled the lease agreement from us. They gave some vague reason. And I've, I've come to find out later that there are some nefarious reasons, you know, some folks that might benefit from us not playing in Chicago. And that's sad that that would happen. Uh, I'm not saying NASL wouldn't have folded, but um, there's a chance it could have not only survived, but thrive uh, if that hadn't happened.
1: Now, e- even though NSL did kind of, you know, go under like that, that sort of, I think, paved the way at the same time for something like NISA to kind of rise up. Um, what was, you know, when you're thinking back to when you guys had the ideas for NISA and kind of where it's going to be, what were your thoughts um, after seeing uh, Nassau fall like that?
0: Yeah, so the NASL approach... Um, my late business partner Jack Cummins and I to start a third division league that would link NPSL and NASL Mm. and set the table for promotion relegation. And that's how NISA was
2: born. Okay, Uh, Yeah, that's what I I remembered hearing. Um, I I haven't seen a lot of people talk about that, but that's what I remembered. So I'm glad you're confirming that memory (laughs) for me.
0: And then after... You know, a few months of working on it and trying to round up the eight necessary teams, uh, some other parties decided they wanted to do the same thing, including the NASL, separate from us, and the NPSL, and this uh, league called League Zero that never got off the ground. So you had some teams that wanted to go to one league, some want to go to the other league. So we were not able to get eight teams together to launch NISA. And I, I got frustrated uh, by it. Uh, my business partner, Jack, passed away. And um, I went on and started Forward Madison, commissioner of NISA, uh, kept with it. And thank goodness he did. Uh, because mm-hmm. uh, his work and then uh, folks from Detroit City and Chattanooga, um, Orange County, I mean, all these guys coalesced. They came together and they got it going. So, you know, Jack and I, started it uh but if it was just he and i it would not have uh come to fruition there's a lot of other people that have made nisa happen still is a long way to go but the pieces are in place for nisa to develop into something really special with a a multi-level league promotion Mm -hmm. and relegation a true open system that reflects Mm -hmm. the way the sport is
1: structured in the rest of the world did, did you know when you and your business partner started this that it would kind of grow as fast as it did since it kind of got off the ground? I mean, now we're seeing things like NISA Nation, you know, there just seems a lot, there seems to be a lot of excitement right now surrounding NISA.
0: We knew it was going to be dynamic, which is a kind word. <laughs> we knew it would be bumpy. We knew there'd be uh, fast growth and we knew there'd also be some teams that, Fell by the wayside uh, along the process. So yeah, we we knew that there was an appetite for it. Mm-hmm. We knew there'd be a lot of uh, teams joining, uh, but we also knew we also knew there would be uh, some teams that didn't make it.
2: So uh, I I think now a, a fairly contentious point, Peter, is that th- we have a lot of people that have differences in opinions on how the sport should be run. Um, but you've sort of been everywhere. You've been in MLS, you've been in Nassau, you've been in NISA, you've been in USL. And during your days at uh, Forward Madison, uh, you were working in a league that was competing in the exact same space uh, as NISA. What, what kind of thought process do you have or, or um, what kind of feelings do you have about the league structures that we have here? I mean, do you, do you believe that we can have multiple league structures working, um, you know, not sort of against each other?
0: Yeah, I do. I think there's a really big country and there's opportunities for the open system and the closed system. Uh, I think the closed system leagues in this country have a lot going for them, MLS and USL. I don't I think there's a, you know, a, a better run league than USL. I think they are Interesting. Uh, okay. broad. Um, they're talented. Um, their broadcast operations, their standards, uh, are, are fantastic. Um I, I think you know there's some issues that I have with uh, the ownership, not not the people, but the structure. I think soccer is a sport that should be uh, owned, governed, controlled by the teams themselves. And then you could right. drill down deeper and say that the teams should be owned and managed and run by the fans, you know, much as it is in, in much of Europe. Uh, And and we don't have that right now Although NISA is creating that. And and that's Mm -hmm. an exciting, if nothing else, it's it's a great experiment, right? To see how it's going to uh, pan out. Uh, But yeah, I mean, MLS, you know, as as much crap as they get from some people in the pro-rel for USA world, they've done some incredibly great things. (laughs) You know, they've managed their growth really well. Um, They've, Built a huge industry in this country. Uh, But, you know, there's others, myself included, that think that it's um, a little too corporate and divested from the fans themselves.
1: What do you think is sort of the issue keeping. Sort of like some of the people from kind of just saying, hey, Pro Well," you know, it's a system that works well everywhere else in the world. But for some reason, they don't think it will work well here.
0: Well, I think folks that grew up in the U.S. Uh, familiar with the other sports, uh, Major League Baseball, the NFL, NHL, NBA, um, I don't want to say brainwashed, but they, they've been indoctrinated into a way of into a structure that's common. And, well, for the 30 or so people, incredibly high net worth individuals that own MLS teams, mm-hmm. it probably is the best way for them. Right. And at least in some ways it is. It does perhaps hold down opportunities uh, on the high side, but it also mitigates the risk. And so, yeah, that makes sense. But the sport shouldn't be for the benefit of 30 wealthy people.
2: Totally agree. Uh, and you know we, we had to bring you there to Pro Rel, but um, we'll we'll get you back on on topic to something a little that you can be a little more glowing about. Let's say, uh, so Chicago House have uh, started off their their Nisa tenure. Um, how are things going there? How how is the energy at the club right now?
0: <laughs> it's really good. Um, and CJ as our technical director, CJ Brown, obviously is an icon in Chicago soccer, and for the the mission. Uh, that Chicago House has to be a platform for social justice, racial equity, diversity and uh, serving the underserved in Chicago. Uh, the people that are finding out about Chicago House are embracing it and really liking it. Uh, we need to get out to more people, um, whether it's the pandemic or other reasons. We're not reaching enough people yet. We mm-hmm. need to uh, get out there and connect with more people, both in the city and the suburbs.
2: Do you think that might just be sort of a result of um, sort of stagnant interest, let's say, in a Chicago fire over the last couple of years? Like maybe people have checked out a little bit out of soccer in the in the city?
0: That's a good question. I don't know. I've never heard it posed that way. You wouldn't I, – I would have naturally thought the other way around. I would have thought, well, there's people that might have been turned off and are apathetic mm-hmm. to the fire because mm-hmm. of their on-field performance last decade. Uh, that they would then embrace something new. Although, to be fair, our record isn't great either. So maybe we need to start winning some games to get those people excited. Um, I think it's just something that will take time, and I think Mm -hmm. the pandemic is certainly part of it, cutting through the clutter in a city the size of Chicago. Uh, Mm -hmm. But the people that are coming to the games are having a really good time.
2: Well, that's good to hear, and I think yeah, we've been having a good time watching it as well. I mean, you guys have a, a live DJ, uh, which is totally <laughs> unorthodox, but great at the same awesome. time. We're we're big fans of it. Um, and I mean, look, I I don't think we expect any, especially a professional team, to start off with a perfect record. I think as fans, we just like to see the 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 right ideas, and I think we've we've definitely seen that from what you guys are doing at Chicago House so far, and I think we're excited to see your support of um, what that league is doing as well. I mean, Carl mentioned NISA Nation earlier, and um, although we've seen some uh, interesting results from NISA Nation so far, uh, you know, that's that's been a lot of fun. Um, are you involved at all with any uh, uh, regional leagues out there, sort of uh, any of the affiliate leagues yeah. that might be moving into that?
0: Yeah, so the Midwest Premier League is um, our – local affiliated league with NISA. Um, Mm -hmm. We historically made the first training compensation solidarity payment. One of those teams, Steel City FC and Joliet earlier this year, because of our signing of one of their former players, Damon Almazan. And um, I'll give you guys a a scoop um, making second and third training compensation solidarity payments to another Midwest Premier League club, uh, the historic club RWB Adria. Uh, uh, for signing, uh, two of their players earlier in the year. So, uh, wow. the, 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 pyramid is real and NISA has already gotten it to three levels with mm-hmm. the affiliated amateur leagues, including Midwest Premier League, NISA Nation, and NISA Pro. I'm looking forward to the day when we have a second division league, uh, NISA, uh, a second division that we can institute pro-rel on.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you're talking about these like solidarity payments, you know, sort of this growth of, you know, I think, I don't want to say like we're starting to find out that a lot of times in these lower leagues, you know, in these semi-professional leagues that there's talented players. There is talent there to come and play in the professional league. And I mean, even more so, I think you saw it, um, Louisville City in the USL, uh, one of their players is heading over to Spain and just got signed by Real Sociedad. And so, like, I, I think we're really starting to see, you know... An eye-opening of talent that's there to be found.
0: Yeah, no doubt. This is a big country with a lot of talent. And, um, I think having a structure with connected leagues and teams is a better way to make sure that those talented players are not only seen, but they get the experience they need to get to the highest level.
2: Yeah, no, we were, I, I was super excited to see that today. I don't think the terms have been released yet, but, um, just goes to show that talent can be discovered anywhere in this country, and the best way to, to do that is make sure we've got teams in different places. And like you said, that can't just be metro areas. We've got to reach out to these more rural areas as well, and, it, and it's not just one side as well. We've got to grow the women's game. Um, and, and you have been uh, entrenched in the women's game for, for quite a long time now, uh, especially with your experience at Chicago Red Star. So uh, with the recent announcement of the USL Super League, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Like, Where do you think the, the women's game is heading in this country? And, and, and how, how do you feel about that Super League as an extension of that?
0: That's a good question. It's, the good news is there's a lot of different uh, organizations and people trying to build out – uh, the framework of women's uh, high-level soccer in the United States. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's still a little unclear. Uh, I know NISA is involved in, in trying to create an open system for women's soccer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, USL has their version and NWSL. Uh, so the more opportunities, the better for, for women and in, in the growth of the sport in this country. Mm-hmm. I think over time it'll probably become more uh stratified and more clear what that looks like but i think we're in for uh (laughs) some very unclear years ahead of us on the women's side
2: it's kind of like we're getting into the soccer wars but uh, on the women's side finally here
0: yep yep no exactly it'll be fun to see how it all shakes out
2: so um peter i wanted to ask you one question um like i said I went and dug through an old blog of yours and I found, um, a particular email you sent to Alexi Lawless back when you were at the Chicago fire. And you wanted to give Alexi some knowledge about, uh, some of the, the top things he could know about running a club. And I wanted to ask, um, where had, or maybe you haven't, but have, your opinions of how to run a a soccer club change at all? Or have any of your uh, experiences given you new lessons over the past 10 or so years? Because I think this was from 2009.
0: Uh, Certainly there's been some evolution in that. Uh, But I think more in terms of uh, the instruments rather than uh, the theories. I think you still are trying to create emotional connections with as many people as possible. You're still trying to get people vested in it you're still trying to get your staff motivated uh by being inclusive you're still trying to be transparent uh, the instruments are, are changing you know with uh, technology uh and different forms of media um but i think the the general framework and theories are still the same
2: well i'm glad to hear that and i mean i think the one thing that people if, if I was to give one thing that people should take away from your leadership style is that it's about the community first. Um, yeah. You're not, you're not going to get people through the turnstiles. You're not going to get eyes on the television unless you can engage the community and let them know that it's not about the team. It's about the community that the team is a part of.
0: Yeah. Owners and management are caretakers for a team. You know, the badge survives, the fans
1: survive. That's
0: where the focus should be.
1: Awesome, Peter. And um, before we sort of let you go, Peter, is, is there anything else you want to add um, that we didn't touch upon that you think, you know, should get out there or any experiences, any stories?
0: Uh, I just wanted to mention that the future of NISA is very bright in that in three years, we should have a, a two-division league second and third division where we activate ProRail, And I think when that happens, it's really going to explode the popularity of this league and this open system structure. It could be as few as three years after that before a first division league is added on top of the NISA pyramid. So that means by 2027, we could have a first division, second division, third division pyramid connected to NISA nation. I don't think enough people right now can see where this is going. Um, in, in, a, in a year or two, maybe it will become more clear. Uh, nice is adding uh, several teams for next season, mm-hmm. and I'm on the expansion committee. I see the pipeline. The expansion for 2023 is looking equally good. So the future is bright for the, for the league.
2: Well, I think if there's if there's one thing we've seen, um, I think Carl let me know that he did a little research and found you were on a uh, a committee to try to bring a USL team to Portland, Maine, back in 2009 or something around then. So if there's anything you know, it's uh, what markets to go to and win because they're they're doing that now. So you were way ahead of the time then, and it sounds like you're way ahead of the time now.
0: <laughs> Thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you guys tonight. Thanks very much. Thank you, Thank Peter. Thank you very much,
1: Peter. Take care. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye.